You may have heard or read at some time or another the phrase post-Christian, where someone states that we're living in a post-Christian era, or that America is a post-Christian nation. If you're not familiar with the term, maybe you didn't know exactly what point the person was making. The term means essentially what it sounds like it means, that America was a Christian nation, but it's not anymore. That may be an oversimplification, but that's the basic meaning of post-Christian when it's used in that context. Now, first, let me clarify that when we say that America was a Christian nation, it doesn't mean that there was a day when you had to be a Christian to live here or that you're any less of an American if you weren't a Christian. There couldn't be anything more unchristian than for the state to require you to believe a certain way about God. No, to say that America was a Christian nation simply means that America was founded upon the principles of Bible Christianity, that the fabric of society for most of her history was largely Christian, and that a majority of her people were Christian. Now, the fact that America was founded upon Christian principles can never be changed. Anybody who denies that has either not studied much American history or is purposely ignoring the plain truth. America was founded upon the principles of Christianity. That's an undeniable fact of American history. But what has changed, though many Christians may not want to acknowledge it, is that the fabric of society is no longer largely Christian, nor are a majority of our citizens any longer Christian. If you're going to be honest about it, you have to admit that that's the case. And that's what's usually meant by the statement that America is in a post-Christian era. The problem with that is that America's greatness has always been a result of her Christian values. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may be saying, I don't agree with that. Well, that's okay. You're certainly entitled to your opinion. But if you were to take a careful look at the whole picture of American history, you have to admit that the parallel between the decline of Christianity and the decline of our country's morals, the decline of honesty, the decline of integrity, the decline of justice, and the decline of the success of the American dream, the parallel is quite astonishing. You see, we all sing, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. We all sing, God bless America, land that I love. We all sing those words, but Christian people actually believe that America is great because of God's blessing upon it. And that God has blessed us because of our adherence to his principles. It seems very obvious to me that the decline of our nation is a direct result of our abandonment of our Christian heritage. Now, here's where I'm going to part company with many of my Christian friends. Far too many Bible-believing Christians would agree with everything I just said, but then they would go on to place the blame on someone else. Like, we've abandoned our Christian heritage, and it's the government's fault. Or... Christianity has declined in America, and it's the fault of this institution or that institution. Or, there's an anti-Christian conspiracy that's working against us. And I don't agree with any of that, not one bit. If Christianity is on the decline in America, it's not the fault of non-Christian people for not embracing Christianity. By the way, Christianity is not 
on the decline in the rest of the world is actually growing. You'll never hear that on the news, but it's actually growing in the rest of the world. But if it's on the decline in America, it's the fault of Christians. It's the fault of Christian people for not living their Christianity. It's our fault for hiding what we have or for professing that we have Christ but not living like it so that there's no reason why anybody would ever want what we have. The decline of Christianity is a result of Christian people who refuse to stand for Jesus. Now, I know that's painful to hear if you're a Christian, so let me say it again. The decline of Christianity is the result of Christian people refusing to stand for Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes today. How do you stand for Jesus? What's the point of standing for Jesus? How do you do it? And what does it mean to stand for Jesus? First, let me tell you a quick story. Several years ago, our church began reaching people for Christ in the South Bronx. We were bringing them to our church in Danbury every Sunday. Most Sundays, about 50 or 60 adults and teenagers and children. We'd bring them to church. We'd teach them God's Word. We'd have a great day together. They loved being here, and we loved having them. Eventually, it became obvious that we were ready to establish a separate church right there in their own neighborhood. And God laid it on the heart of one of our church men to be the pastor of this new church. So for about a year before the church held its first service, while he was preparing to be a brand new pastor, I had the great privilege of driving the bus each week to pick people up on Sunday morning, bring them to church, and take them back home in the afternoon. So it's Sunday, June 28th, 2009. The previous Thursday, the whole world had been shocked by the news of the death of Michael Jackson. As I drove the bus through the inner city of the South Bronx that Sunday morning, four days after his death, it was obvious that these neighborhoods were filled with people who were mourning over his death. I mean, it was one of those times when you could just feel a general mood of people grieving, and they were all grieving for Michael Jackson. I pulled the bus into the block where I would be picking up about 30 more people. I pulled up to the stop, put the bus in neutral, pulled on the parking brake, and I waited for a couple of families to come out of their apartment buildings and get on the bus. There were already about 20 or 25 people on the bus. As we waited there, a song began to play on the bus's CD player. The people on the bus began to sing with the song. They'd heard it before, and they knew the words, and so they sang along with it. And as more people boarded the bus, sort of a spontaneous choir began to form, singing this song called Stand for Jesus. When the song finished, People shouted out, again! So I hit the rewind button. Everybody sang it again, and then again. In the middle of a city that was grieving over the loss of a pop singer, a busload of people had their eyes on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all the way to church that day, a one-hour ride, over and over they sang, Stand for Jesus. From that day on, Stand for Jesus became sort of a theme song for the bus ride. In fact, the day finally came when that busload of people formed their own church. And on their last Sunday service with us, they stood before the rest of our congregation and they sang that song, Stand for Jesus. And now, every Sunday morning in the Bronx, those people, along with many others, take their stand for Jesus. Jesus, he's standing by. 
is looking for someone to fill an empty place, to live a life of holiness and defy the world's embrace, to count all gain as loss for the glory of the cross, a city on a hill for everyone to see. Stand for Jesus, don't be Stand for Jesus, claim His name. For He loved you on a rocky cross, with arms out open wide. Stand for Jesus, He's standing by your side. Jesus, He's standing by your side. They say we're in a post-Christian era in America, and that's probably true. But if we are, the fault lies with Christians and our failure to stand for Jesus. Now, what does it mean to stand for Jesus? Well, obviously, we're not supposed to be militant or obnoxious or hateful. Anybody who takes those kinds of approaches in the name of Christianity doesn't know the first thing about Jesus Christ. So then, what does it mean to stand for Jesus? Well, the truth is, it may be manifested in different ways depending on where you're living and when you're living. I think an excellent example of standing for Jesus can be found in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's probably true that John was the one man who was closer to Jesus during his life on earth than anybody else was. After Jesus returned to heaven, the apostles took the gospel message to the entire known world but they paid a heavy price for their boldness. Every one of those apostles wound up being martyred for preaching the word of God. Everyone except John. They tried to put John to death when he was an older man by boiling him in a vat of oil, but miraculously he didn't die. And as you can imagine, when John couldn't be killed, it put great fear into the hearts of his persecutors. I mean, that would kind of freak me out. Guy wouldn't die. They didn't want to mess with him anymore. They just wanted him out of their sight. So they exiled John on an island called Patmos. So there's John on the island of Patmos, all alone. He's an old man. The first century AD is coming to a close. All of his friends and co-laborers are dead. It must have felt to John like this movement called Christianity was about over. John's the only one left living who had actually met Jesus in person. And now he is exiled on a desert island. Can you imagine the hopelessness that John must have felt? 
the loneliness, the temptation to despair, the temptation to wonder, what in the world's going on? What's God doing to me? Hey, Christian, have you ever felt like that? You remember the old-time Bible Christianity that you were raised on. Then you compare it with this nonsense that's so popular today. Do you ever think, man, does anybody really know God anymore? You remember the old saints of God singing Amazing Grace and the old rugged cross. And then you compare it with some so-called Christian heavy metal band. That's a godless concept if I ever heard one. Christian heavy metal band. But you compare those saints of God singing those anointed songs. You compare it with a so-called Christian heavy metal band that wants to rock the sound for Jesus. And you know God's not within a thousand miles of that garbage. If you're not careful... You'll start thinking, why bother? What's the use? Imagine the strong temptation that John must have felt in the Isle of Patmos to think, why bother? What's the use? Imagine the temptation to just give up on living. The temptation to just sit there and wait to die and even to get bitter at God for letting all that happen. But John didn't give in to that temptation. How do we know? Because in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1, John makes a remarkable statement. He says, I, John who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then in the very next verse, John says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It was Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, John's by himself on an island. How did he know it was Sunday? Well, the simple answer is he was keeping track. Maybe he scratched a mark for every day in the bark of a palm tree. I don't know. But somehow John was keeping track of the days. And even though he was certainly a faithful, obedient Christian every day of the week, there was something special about Sunday. And even though he was alone in this island, even though there was no one there to see him, even though there was no one there to join him, John decided that since it was Sunday, he was going to have a special time with God. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he says. When Sunday came, I had church. For all he knew, he might be the last practicing Christian on the planet, but he didn't care. He said it was Sunday, so I had church. There's not a better example of what it means to stand for Jesus than that right there. It was Sunday, so I had church. As the old song says, though no one join me, still I will follow. What this generation needs is some Christians who'll decide, I don't care if it's popular, I don't care who likes it, I don't care if I'm the last Christian left on the planet, I'm just going to do the things that God says to do. I'm going to do the things that please God. I'm going to obey because I'm supposed to. It was Sunday, John said, so I had church. Now here's the remarkable thing about that. John started off that Sunday by himself, but he didn't finish the day by himself. Because sometime during that Sunday... Someone showed up whom John hadn't seen for about 60 years. All of a sudden, John hears a voice behind him saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. John turned around to see the face of Jesus Christ, God the Son. And as soon as he saw Jesus, he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Jesus raised John up and gave him a tour of the future. He told him to write in a book all the things that he saw. And that book is what we now call the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation contains so many things that are common knowledge in our society today, like the Mark of the Beast, 666. 
the Battle of Armageddon, the details of the Great White Throne Judgment, and so many other things, those details are exclusive to the book of Revelation. They're not found anywhere else in the Bible. Just think. These things were made available to us through John because John decided to be faithful. John decided to stand for Jesus when it seemed like it wouldn't matter. John decided that when Sunday came, he would just have church because he was supposed to. John's faithfulness left a wealth of knowledge for 19 centuries of Christians who would come after him. Hey, what is your faithfulness going to leave for those who come after you?
We're talking about standing for Jesus. God's not looking for superstars. He's not looking for wealthy people or ultra-talented people or even martyrs. He's just looking for simple, everyday Christian people to be faithful, to do what they know they're supposed to do to please God. Let me share with you a few thoughts about how to stand for Jesus. It's not anything complicated or new, just some simple things that we all need to be reminded of from time to time. First of all, to stand for Jesus means that you don't hide the fact that you're a Bible-believing Christian. Do the people you work with even know that you're a Christian? Do the other students in your school even know that you're a Christian? I'm not talking about preaching to everybody on the job. I don't believe it's right to evangelize your coworkers on company time unless casual conversation is compatible with your work assignment, but that's not even what I'm talking about. Every job I've ever worked, people knew that I was a Christian. I never had to announce it, but I did read my Bible at break time. I did pray before I ate. I wasn't obnoxious about it, but when you walk with God, it's going to get noticed. Now, did I get teased for it? Well, sure. But some of the people with the biggest mouths would be the same people to pull me aside when they had a crisis and say, hey, Joe, can you pray for my daughter? She's going to have some tests and it could be serious. Hey, Joe, my mom's dying. Would you please pray for her? In fact, would you go visit her in the hospital? Now, praise God, I did have the opportunity to win some coworkers and their families to Christ. Of course, the price I paid for that to happen is that I took a little tease and I took a little kidding. You know, like walking to the break room and having guys say, hold on to your wallet, Joe's going to take up a collection. Oh, no, what did you do? Well, I laughed at it. That's funny. Just roll with it. It's no big deal. But you know what was sad? At nearly every job I've ever worked, off to the side, when nobody was around, some fellow employee would pull me aside and say, Joe, are you a born-again Christian? So am I. And I think to myself, man, I never would have guessed it. Do the people on the job know that you're a Christian? Don't hide it. Stand for Jesus by not hiding the fact that you're a Christian. The second way to stand for Jesus is to live a spirit-filled life. The most attractive thing in the world is a spirit-filled Christian. The top three characteristics that God wants us to demonstrate to the world are love, joy, and peace, Galatians 5 tells us. The people where you buy your groceries, the people where you get your car fixed, the people where you eat out regularly, your neighbors, your family members, when they see you and meet you, they should consistently see love and joy and peace. They should see the Spirit of God manifesting himself in your life. When you're living a Spirit-filled life from day to day, you make people say, boy, I wish I had what he has. You stand for Jesus by living a spirit-filled life. A third way to stand for Jesus is very simply spread the gospel message. The book of Acts said that the early church disciples filled the city with the doctrine of Christ. And that wasn't the assessment of the church about themselves. That was the accusation made against them by their enemies. Man, I wish the enemies of Christ could make that accusation against God's people today. But in most cities, they can't. Knowledge of the gospel message should be commonplace in our city, folks. Everybody may not choose to be saved, but everybody ought to know how to be saved. Hand out gospel tracts. Witness to your friends and neighbors and coworkers at the appropriate time. Have ministries in your church that are actively spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what every church is supposed to be about. Tragically, most people in most churches couldn't even tell you what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ 
the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven by God and receive eternal life. That's the core message of the Bible. That message is stated most succinctly in John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You and I have sinned against God with our lies, our hatred, our disobedience, our rebellion against him. And our sins carry a mandatory penalty that a just and a holy God cannot ignore. He must punish our sin. But instead of punishing us, God loved us so much that he took that penalty upon himself. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he suffered sin's penalty himself in our place. And now each of us has a choice. We can go ahead and face sin's penalty on our own by enduring eternal condemnation and damnation. Or we can be forgiven by the God who already took our penalty for us. That's the choice that you have to make. And by not making that choice, you're choosing to face sin's penalty on your own. You can make that choice right now. You can do business with God right now, right there where you are. It's as simple as telling God that you know you've sinned against him. Plead guilty. You know he paid the penalty for your sin. And you know that because he did pay the penalty for your sin, he's your only hope of you ever being forgiven. And tell him that you're choosing to turn from your own sinful ways. You're choosing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You make that choice right now. You tell God about it, and God promises to do the rest. That, in a nutshell, is the message of the gospel. If we can help you to understand more about that, or if we can help you in any other way, please come by and visit our church. We'd love to meet you. Thanks for spending time with us this morning. Have a wonderful week. Sins have been cast in the depths of the sea.